Hello everyone and welcome once again to the Cave to the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we're going uh, once again through our book uh, uh, Keeping Faith in the Age of Reason by J Dr. Jason Lyle. And uh, we're in kind of the largest portion of the book, the uh, kind of devil in the details and um, looking at uh, different passages that one passage says a certain thing, uh, another passage says maybe the opposite or something uh, different to what it is. Uh, and so far we we haven't um, found anything uh, bad and actually it's been kind of uh, boring but uh, <laughs> but we'll we'll get into um, we'll get into a few more for this uh, chapter because it is the kind of the biggest portion of the book. So um, we're gonna start off with uh, number 193. Yeah, this one says that uh, 193 is the issue of, in one passage it says, David never sinned, that is, he was clean and righteous. And then another set of passages, it indicates that um, that uh, David acted wickedly. Mm -hmm. So which is it? He never sinned or he acted wickedly, which means that he would have sinned, right? right? Yeah. Well, and uh, I think uh, pretty much everyone can be in agreement that... Uh, we can only point to one person that's never sinned. That's, of right. course, Jesus. Right. Uh, so uh, there seems to be something more at play with the, the words here than uh, never having sinned. So there seems to be a little bit of nuance to, to what it is. Yeah, so let's look at uh, those, those passages. Yeah, so uh, uh, the question uh, has uh, several verses. Uh, we'll cover just a couple here. Uh, 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-one says, The Lord dealt with me, David, According to my righteousness, according to my cleanliness of my hands, he rewarded me. All right, so he never sinned. That's what it seems like. Second <laughs> uh, Samuel twenty two twenty five, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanliness in His sight. Wow, but this then, guy is a good guy. Yeah, he's never done anything <laughs> wrong. Uh, but then we get into First Kings fifteen five, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not return aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Uh, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, oops. So, oops, yeah, yeah, everything but the whole <laughs> murder and uh, polygamy and <laughs> yeah, adultery. Just, yeah, list the commandments yeah. and you could probably figure out a way how yeah, he broke that, one of them and knows it. And that, and, yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm honoring father and mother is probably in there somewhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and then Second uh, Samuel 24, 10 is probably the biggest one, but David's heart uh, struck after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So wow, there, so yeah. Even David himself is saying that he himself has sinned Sin. greatly. Yeah, yeah. So what does, what does this mean? Does this mean that uh, David and uh, the author of Samuel and Kings are, are in complete contrast. Yeah. So, so what we have here is what uh, Lysel, uh, Ly, Ly, Jason Lyle, Doctor Lyle says is a straw man fallacy and equivocation. So, yeah. a straw man is you know you build a, a straw man argument, right? The one that's easy to defeat, and then you mm -hmm. blow it down. You say, "Hey, I've defeated this." And the equivocation, of course, is when you're using a word um, in an argument. In two different places, it, you're using it with two different definitions. So you're equivocating on that argument, right? Like, for instance, if I say, um, you know, um, I went to the um, to the bank and I 
and then someone says, oh, I withdrew money, and I say, well, no, actually, I just got my feet wet, you know. <laughs> so clearly the word bank can be used in two different ways, and so if you use it in two different ways in an argument, that's called equivocation. Of course, that's a fallacy. It's not a, it's not a good argument. The argument falls apart. Well, Dr. Lyle wants us to understand that strong, that, uh, that that's what the um, – the critic here is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Setting right. up a straw man and also equivocation on this word of righteous. Right. right. Uh, he says uh, those who continue in sin are unrighteous, right? All, all, all have sinned, and so clearly David has sinned. We all have sinned. And, of course, those who continue in sin are unrighteous and are unclean in, in God's sight. However, those who repent of sin and trust in Christ for salvation, God forgives, cleanses, and treats as if they had not sinned, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what we see here. We see kind of a a positional righteousness is what it's often called, right? And then there's the the practice, right? So I think what he does here is he tries to identify three types of uh, righteousness in this particular uh, uh, passage, in these various passages. Uh, the first kind of righteousness we might call, um, as I mentioned, um, the, the righteousness in principle. This is a person that Jesus Christ has forgiven, he's cleansed, and therefore our sins are placed on Christ and his sins, or his righteousness is placed on us. And so we have positional righteousness before God. When God looks at us now, since we have uh, repented of our sins and trusted Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross to forgive us our sins, now we're looked as if we are we have his righteousness on us. Yeah, right? This is what the atonement on the cross specifically did. Right, this right. This is the, the necessary, the, the whole creation leading up to the single moment is, is, is pretty much imbued in, in this understanding. Exactly. So it allows God now to look on us and to save us. There's also what we might call an internal conscience cleansing type of righteousness where when I do sin, First uh, John 1 9 says, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There it is, right? And so, uh, so here I clean my conscience, and therefore I can have a righteous uh, conscience when I do sin by my confession. So we might call that an internal cleaning of conscience type of righteousness. So we have this positional righteousness that we get as a result of Jesus Christ uh, paying the penalty for our sin. We have this internal cleansing of our conscience when we confess our sins. This was something I think that we see when Paul was uh, standing before uh, in Jerusalem uh, when he was standing before the uh, the Sanhedrin, and he said, you know, that you know, unto this day my my conscience is clean, yeah. and he was ordered to be slapped by the by the high priest because they knew that they, or at least they felt, nobody's conscience was clean because they were accusing him of doing something wrong. And I think what he was getting at here is that this confessional cleansing of of uh, a type of righteousness, mm-hmm. right, that one can have. Yeah. So that's the second time. Because second he was time. pointing to, when I stand before God, I will be guiltless. I, right. will, I won't have this idea of, oh, I, I should have done this. And so that's what kind of unbelievers will have once they stand before God. They won't have any excuse whatsoever. So um, there's that, that, that guilt that sets in. Plus then their, their actual guilt, like 
a courtroom guilt. Right, yeah. right, yeah. So we have then the positional righteousness. We have this internal cleansing of the conscience as a result of confession of sins type of righteousness. And then the third righteousness is just we might call practical righteousness where we uh, everyday obedience to what God wants us to do, right? And so from when I say from an external perspective, when men look at us, they say, oh, there is there is a righteous person, right? We we see that with Job, right? Job was righteous. Well, what that meant was that he external, you know, uh, pract- uh, practical righteousness. Mm-hmm. He did those things that were in obedience to what God. Now, did Job sin? Of course he did, right? Yeah. Everybody does, right? But when people looked at him, he, he had this practical righteousness. So there are at least three kinds of righteousness. And so we need to ask the critic, to identify which one of these kinds that these various passages are talking about and don't just assume that the passage is talking about the same kind of righteousness, right? But if they did that, then their question would fall apart. Right. (laughs) Uh, So, like, even even in sin, uh, we're called to repent of our sins. So in our unrighteousness, our our, um, post-sin phase if we're believers were called to repent of that sin we're actually um being righteous in the in the fact that uh that's what we're called to do Mm -hmm. where the unbeliever wouldn't do that so he's still unrighteous yeah good so we're being obedient right and therefore that yeah yeah Yeah. so even even when david sins and uh nathan comes to him and and gives him the story about the uh the the poor person with the, the sheep and he throws himself on kind of the mercy of the court and says, yeah. you know, oh, you know, woe yeah. is me. I yeah. understand exactly what I've done. Yeah. Immediately yeah. repents. That's what we're called to do because we don't have that um, full, uh, uh, perfect nature that Christ did. Right. So we have to have that system where we, we, we uh, have our sin mediated. And that's what the Old Testament sacrifice system uh, showed. And then... Um, David imbues as even the king, uh, showing that um, he needed Christ, uh, looking forward to, to the Christ, the Messiah's um, payment for his sin. That's mm-hmm. how he was able to um, kind of hook on to that um, to that future uh, payment process. Yeah, good. So, so David was a sinner because we're all sinners. He he trusted God for his uh, salvation, right? He he trusted God, and so he was saved, and therefore, the uh, the righteousness that uh, that the sacra- sacramental system pictured that Christ would accomplish for everybody, mm-hmm. that righteousness was applied to David, and so he was righteous in that sense. But that doesn't mean then that. He didn't sin and needed to confess, which, as you mentioned, he did to Nathan there, and then obtained that kind of internal cleansing of the conscience, the guilt of it, right, righteous, and then, of course, how he lived before men as well. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, if we make those various distinctions, then it seems like there is no contradictions here because we have understand that the word is used in different ways and we need to figure out what way is that what the word right. is used which is what we have use. in the english language as well yeah yeah so the next one is um 204 and the question here is how should we treat our enemies right some passages <laughs> indicate that enemies should be treated with loving compassion uh, but others suggest that uh, we should treat them just the opposite. 
So how should we treat our enemies? Right. <laughs> well, once again, uh, I, I almost just want to say by default, all these are, are bifurcation fallacies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. then also... Either or, you know, and yeah. so therefore, is it A or B? And, you know, that question you should ask yourself when you're given those types of questions is, well, are, is there any other options, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then also we should uh, read the text carefully and, uh, lo and behold, in context. Uh, and... Uh, his, his little quip here is that we should read it biblically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The answer is how should we treat our, our, our enemies? Well, we should treat them biblically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in, 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 in what context are, are we talking about? So um, I, I believe here he talks about, uh, you know, when, um, when someone is threatening to kill us, uh, what's the response? Uh, it's different than uh, someone at work who has a, 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 a snide comment that, you know, may hurt our feelings. Yeah. Two two different extremes of 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 our enemies, and mm. so two different responses. So right. that bifurcation fallacy can be pointed out when you kind of go to um, different uh, e- extreme examples, because uh, clearly the person wanting to kill you is your enemy, yeah. and also the person at work who doesn't like you that's trying to get one over on you is. Uh, considered your could be considered your enemy as well. So. Yeah, yeah, and he makes the distinction, and you know, you need to look at the circumstances, right? Clearly, if somebody broke into my house and was intent on raping my my wife and daughters, uh, I would do everything in my power to to protect them. Right? Yeah, they are my enemies, and I will do everything. I wouldn't turn the other cheek. Turn right? The other cheek yeah, is different. I would different do every, And, and yeah. so, in for instance, in a just war, you are fighting a battle against an enemy that's intent on you know on 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 um, harming those. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know. Outside in a peace situation, you know, and you're not at war, let's say, uh, then you should have compassion on your enemies, right? Especially, you know, if they're not intent on harming you in, in that kind of way, then you should, you should have um, compassion. So Lyle makes a distinction between how do we treat people at war and how do we treat people during peace, right? And at war, we defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we are to treat, their, you know, our enemies there. Um, you know, in terms of uh, without <laughs> compassion, but in uh, in peacetime, mm-hmm. you know, we treat our enemies um, with compassion. That's yeah. what the scriptures say. Well, it's not to say too that there aren't examples that you can bring up where it's like, well, what's what, what what's the proper response to this? So, even things where you hear you know Jesus say um, when the Roman soldier asks you to go a mile, which he's legally allowed to to, to do under under force then you're supposed to take his pack another mile, so two miles total. So there you have an occupation, an enemy soldier, someone who could kill you in the, in the streets legally if, if, uh, if you didn't take his pack and go the next mile, and there you're supposed to treat that Roman soldier with overabundance of, of good tidings. Because, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, he may be your enemy, but there's no uh, kind of immediate threat there. Right, so right. it's it's a... It's a kind of a nuanced look and and it's nice that um the new testament expands upon this in fact it, it seems like um uh jesus kind of uh doubles over uh, uh when you know how many times should i forgive my enemy well you know you've heard it said that seven times but it's seven times 70 so it's saying that uh you know as christians we're kind of under an obligation to um to be even more forgiving and even more loving and why is that it's because when we understand what sin is, we understand that's what we inflict upon God. 
it's what we understand that Christ takes upon himself on the cross and the payment for that and how weighty that is and then how thankful we should be for that so even even when it's very hard like even if uh, you have someone who's assaulting you with a slap on the cheek mm-hmm. that seems like okay well now I can take uh, a, a different approach but even there it seems like uh, there are times when we don't fight it. Even even going into martyrdom, it seems like there are certain times where you may be felt to be called to just kind of accept faith yeah. as a testament, which yeah. uh, the yeah. the early church did. And we see that you know in the in the uh, the book of Acts, right? Paul is slapped. He, yeah. he says something, but he doesn't retaliate. The uh, apostles are are captured in the early book uh, in the early portion of the book of Acts by the. Um, you know the, uh, the the religious leaders. They're told not to preach in <laughs> Jesus' name, and they are beaten, mm-hmm. right? Literally beaten in 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 chapter five because they have preached in Jesus' name and warned not to do it again. And do they retaliate? Do they get up in arms? Do they you know uh, call the people to you know to protest? No, no, no. They rejoice that they had an opportunity to suffer for Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's the context. You have to look at that, and, and you have to be sensitive to that. And, yeah, there are instances when you, um, when you even in a what may seem like an enemy, you don't retaliate, right, in that situation. Yeah. So that's what he says. How uh, None of these verses contradict each other by giving two contradictory instructions for the same circumstance. So you have to look at the circumstances to determine what's going on. All right, this next one is uh, is a busy one, right? This one is 206. Oh, we're on 205. Oh, did we? Oh, yep. I, I, sorry. I won't so, skip. So we'll I do an skip. easy one before yeah. we go into the hard one. All right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so has anyone ever ascended into heaven? Uh, John says no one but Christ, but then Genesis, Second Kings, and Hebrews uh, give several examples. So um, clearly John 3 talks about uh, Christ ascending into heaven. We see that in the book of Acts. And then uh, Enoch is in Genesis mm. and the Hebrews passage. And then Second Kings is Elijah rather than Elisha. Yeah. I always get them so confused. Why don't, you, why don't you read the Second Kings passage? Second Kings. And they still went on and talked, and behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. So he clearly went into heaven, yeah. right? Wow. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not... Uh, he did not die uh, for God to him, or that's what we kind of assume. Yeah. Uh, die in the yeah. sense of uh, died of old age or, or some cause. He just seemed to ascend. Yeah. So clearly a contradiction because it says only Christ did, but then, of course, we see these examples. Well, uh, failure to read the text carefully because it's it's for, for what, what what direction. It's not just a up direction it's a also down direction <laughs> which uh that's what uh the the context here is is talking about it's uh, nicodemus saying you know how how we bleed these things uh and it says that jesus came down from heaven which we um clearly um uh, uh accept with the incarnation and then he uh, ascends back into heaven which uh, is his rightful place and he tells the apostles that and they don't understand until uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So, yeah, yeah. Right, Good. So Jesus really, currently no one living on earth has ever ascended to heaven and then we turned back, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and so as to report what he or she has seen. Jesus was talking about he, 
he, he was able to communicate to us what heaven was like because he had been there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and uh, in the full context of the Trinity, which is very important to understand in, in most of these answers, and then understanding the relationship he had with the Father and the Spirit, uh, how he was able to be sent by the Father, how him and the Father were able to send the Spirit, um, which I think was one of our other questions that we <laughs> answered. Um, and so uh, we we kind of have uh, only that and really John's uh, kind of visionary um, uh, translation into heaven, uh, but not an actual physical uh, going into heaven and coming back. Hmm. Yeah. Good. So no contradiction there. Sorry, critic. All right. Now, now uh, we're going to do kind of three of them because they all kind of go along the same uh, path. Yeah, so, they're, they're talking about the same incident that mm-hmm. happened, right? Yeah, which uh, is, is what we find interesting because we've dealt with this in a, in a different book with our good friend that we always like reading, Peter Enns, uh, who views uh, kind of this passage as one of those, uh, the Bible can't be trusted and um, it uh, is full of uh, flaws and you only have to really rely on uh, what the Bible says about salvation issues, even though it's, he's really vague in, in, yeah. in that yeah. understanding. Yeah. Uh, so uh, 206, 251, and 287. Uh, so the first one says, uh, were the men with Paul knocked to the ground? So this is on the road to Damascus. Uh, it's, it's, you know, um, Paul, um, kind of his origin story, he was um, a, sent out by the uh, holy men to go and kill Christians and mm-hmm. persecute them. And mm-hmm. we see even him um, watching the cloak uh, of the people that went to stone Stephen. And then um, he is riding with his companions on the road to Damascus, is struck blind, and then goes away for th- about three years and then comes to the disciples. Yeah, to say, so this is his, his conversion yeah. uh, experience, yeah. right, yeah. that he's describing here. Yeah. yeah. So the first one is, were the men with Paul knocked to the ground? In one instance <laughs> it says yes, and the other instance it doesn't. It, it, uh, you know, it says that they stood. Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, y- yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, this this one, it's 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 kind of the, the weakest question of, of the bunch, but um, when I get knocked to the ground, I usually stand back up. So. Oh. It's, you mean you don't stay there for the rest of your life forever? You know, I I, I know it's a contradiction, but uh, but that's that's so that means that you could be knocked to the ground and you could be standing, mm-hmm. but it depends on what time we yeah, were talking. Yeah, about, usually right? usually time falls in A B C type of <laughs> yeah, trans- kind of transition. Kind of, yeah, yeah I'm, unfortunately, I'm bold to that, and I can't go back. Yeah. So so if there's, so if everyone was knocked on the ground, Paul stayed there for a time because he was dealing with the Jesus, Jesus mean, issue, yeah. but everybody else got up. Then clearly. They were knocked to the ground, but then they also uh, they stood right. right. Eventually, they they stood back up. Right? Yeah. So they didn't remain on the ground for the rest of their lives. Clearly, right. Right. And and Lyle points out that the phrase "stood speechless" is mm. not necessarily referring to their posture anyway. Right. Just as one can stand firm while in a seated position, mm-hmm. right. So the or, critic has made two errors in thinking that this passage contradicts yeah. each other. Right. He My, didn't distinguish between different times and the semantic range. Yeah. Right? Their jaw was on the floor. Yeah. Th- doesn't actually mean their jaw was on the floor. Right. Although right. if they were on the ground at the time, maybe that was yeah. different. But, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, 251 then is, is dealing with the same incident, right? The same um, circumstance. Yeah. So this one is a, a little bit more on the, uh, we kind of need to look at maybe the 
the original language to help, which uh, I do have to say that uh, once we found out what the original language talks about, um, it really drives the point home. And depending on kind of your translation, it either has a note or it renders it pretty well. Um, so did Paul see Jesus on the road to Damascus? First uh, Corinthians nine one contradicts Acts nine eight and First Corinthians fifteen eight. Uh, so again, this is uh, uh, not really the case. Uh, he actually calls it a bluff and a failure to read the text carefully. Depending if you want to be charitable to the person mm. who's asking this question. Uh, first of all, uh, none of the verses listed by the critic actually states whether he saw uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, it, uh, the First Corinthians uh, nine one and fifteen eight both teach that Paul saw Jesus, but neither state what happened, uh, whether this happened on the road to Damascus. So you kind of in, can infer that, but it's not necessarily the case. Um, but it does say that only that Paul, rather than his companions, heard Jesus and saw a light. Mm-hmm. Um, which uh, let me pull up the verses here. Fifteen eight. Uh, last of all, as 15, to the yeah. one untimely born, he so also first for me. Yeah. So, so that, first Corinthians yeah. fifteen. Eight, so that's right. Paul saying that that he um, uh, that Jesus uh, appeared to appeared to him, and he was last. Uh, nine eight. Um, so seven and eight for Acts says the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Uh, Saul, this Paul, of course, rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Hmm. So, so yeah, so Paul saw light and he heard a voice, mm-hmm. right? Now, so this doesn't necessarily say that he specifically saw the Lord Jesus at this time. Paul right. does say he's seen that he saw the Lord Jesus, but he doesn't say even in the First Corinthians uh, passage when that was. Mm-hmm. Right? This says he saw a light and heard a voice. Right. Uh, there could have been a time where uh, possibly, although we're not exactly sure that uh, when he was stoned, uh, he may have died and he doesn't talk about what happens to him after that. So it's it's kind of a vague sense. That could have also been a time period where he saw Christ and then uh, was brought back. The third uh, issue with this same um, circumstances is in uh, 287. <clears throat> This one is the question, excuse me, <clears throat> did the men with Paul hear the voice? Yes, according to nine, uh, Acts 9, 7, but no, according to Acts uh, 22, 9. Mm-hmm. So did the men with Paul hear the voice? Right? Yeah. So, so 9, 7 nine, and 8 seven says. says that they heard the voice but saw no one. And then Acts twenty two nine says, Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand. This is the uh, English Standard Version. Uh, did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. All right. Well, so, uh, so Lyle calls this an equivocation fallacy, right? To hear can mean either to perceive sound or to understand words. Mm-hmm. Right? So the men with Paul may well have heard the voice of Christ as a sound... Right, 
but didn't understand the words, the voice, in terms of understanding what he was communicating, right? Which so, happens yeah, to so, me all the time, yeah, especially yeah. if I'm watching something and my wife is talking. Talking, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, uh, you, you hear. Yeah, yeah I, I heard you. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's probably why you hear uh, him say, Paul, Paul, why have you? Yeah. Hey, yeah. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to get your attention yeah. here. Exactly. Yeah. So here the men heard a sound. They, they, yeah. So they did hear something. Did they understand what what was being said? No, they didn't understand what was being said. So they heard and not heard. And but it's um, it's using the word in in the appropriate way. Right. right? There's, that's not a contradiction. And this too is is where we've looked at the original language. Or we should say we've had people way smarter than us look at the original <laughs> language and and point out the fact that it is this uh, d- different. Uh, uh, translation that would be uh, to hear with understanding rather than um, hear uh, to, to uh, n- normally as we we understand it. Right. We hear it and then, oh yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. But it's right. kind of like right. a uh, someone talking to somebody in the wind and, and you're on the outskirts, but someone right next to them will be able to hear much easier. So it's kind of that, okay, I, I heard something and then he saw a light and then was struck blind. So I'm sure there was something that happened. But I don't know what. Yeah, I didn't know exactly what was mm-hmm. said. That's what. And and we have to uh, we have to <clears throat> assume too that I don't know too many people who uh, deny First Corinthians was written by Paul. Um, Acts had um, definitely uh, Luke was was um, very intimate with Paul. And in fact, seems to be writing both Luke and Acts as kind of the court documents for for Paul as he goes to stand before Caesar. Um, and so this this is Paul's giving his own testimony. So you would think he would kind he of underst- have it, yeah. understand yeah. what you know the most momentum occasion where he goes from killing Christians to becoming one yeah. um, in, in the in the span of you know probably a couple minutes. There. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, I I think we've probably reached the end of uh, of our time here that we wanted to deal with these. So we might have to just split this up into a third piece. A third one. Yeah. yeah. Well, this one is is a longer chapter. Yeah. And it, it when we kind of think of contradictions or, or people bringing up contradictions, these are kind of the the main ones that we think about. Oh, this this is a little different than this, and um, this is probably where the majority of the people that you're gonna interact with are, are gonna um, go based based on if if they they even know anything of the Bible right. or if they it, it seems like people have just oh well the Bible is full of contradictions you ask yeah. them well okay can you name a few they might kind of know so, some of them here yeah. Um, yeah. so these are kind of the ones that um, that deconcentrates on uh, the biggest uh, section of them for. yeah. Good. But yeah, so uh, yeah, we'll be back uh, next time with uh, part three. So thanks for joining us. Yep, thank you.